right. Um, okay, a little a verse just popped into my head, which I'm going to find, try and find. Here, so if you will just play a bit of Muzak, a bit of elevator music for a minute or two. I think the girl from Ipanema is a popular one. Um, All right. Yeah. Well, that. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, I may not be able to uh, to find it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I did find it. Look at this. Praise God. <coughs> uh, so we'll start with this. John fourteen. John fourteen. Um, do Do you have a Bible? You have a microwave one? Okay. All right. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so John 14. And this, of course, is the, uh, uh, the upper room. And this is Jesus who is telling his disciples that he's going away. And I want to start at verse 15. Remember, he's now introducing the Holy Spirit uh, here. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you see that? He dwells with you, but will be in the future in you. Uh, you see, because at the time that, that Jesus uttered those words, the Holy Spirit had not descended. The Holy Spirit was not within the disciples. That is a very important distinction, I think, that people miss. Uh, when did the Holy Spirit come into the disciples? Pentecost in Acts 2. And you remember last week we were talking about uh, Peter and Cornelius and um, that at the end of that chapter in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit descends while Peter is giving the gospel to Cornelius and to Cornelius' friends. And uh, they begin to speak in tongues as a sign to the disciples that the Holy Spirit has actually descended upon them. Do you see? And then what does Peter say? He says, can anyone forbid water to them, to these Gentiles? Because them also the Holy Spirit has descended upon or come upon. Do you see? So that is a very important distinction. First, the Holy Spirit uh, is promised then the Holy Spirit descends after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the descent, descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 to the Jews to the Gentiles this seems to be opened up in Acts 8 but more particularly in Acts 10 with Cornelius and in Acts chapter 11 if you want to turn there where Peter is rehearsing this Um, 
we'll, we'll start with uh, verse 5. I was in a city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, in a vision, uh, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, there stood before me the... the, Sorry, there stood before... Shall I, shall I try and this again? I'm having, I've got my reading teeth in. I should be able to do this. But anyway, at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was. Ha, ah, got it. Having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Now notice that the Spirit here has informed Peter that this is of God. Do you see? He's not kind of clueless and guessing about this. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Not infants. Doesn't say infants, okay? As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Do you see that? As upon us at the beginning. So, what we're seeing here is we're seeing a prediction uh, in in, uh, John of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. Alright? The Holy Spirit descending and obviously the disciples were born again and people were born again in the early chapters of Acts and then Peter is saying the same thing happened to the Gentiles. So, uh, without going into church language just yet, although we are going to do that today, just notice what's going on. Salvation through the Holy Spirit is being offered to Jew and Gentile. This would not surprise anybody who knew the covenants in the Old Testament where uh, the salvation promises were to the Jew but then they were also extended to Gentiles too. You see? Often in tandem with the witness of or the salvation of Israel which uh, we'll get to at uh, another time. By the way, you see this also in John 7.39. Somebody turn to John 7.39 and read that out for me. Thus he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. So when was the Spirit given? After Jesus was glorified. That means if you're looking for people to receive the Holy Spirit in the same way we have, before 
Jesus was glorified, you're looking in vain. And if you're reading uh, salvation through uh, regeneration by the Holy Spirit before uh, Jesus has ascended, if you're seeing that in the Gospels, you're seeing that in the Old Testament, it's you that's seeing it. It's not in the Bible. Do you see? In fact, it's contradicted by these verses. Do you see that? So, you might have theological questions about uh, about that, but this is not a systematic theology class. So, I might not even answer those questions. Um, uh, you know, we can, but uh, that's not what we're here for. But I'm just calling your attention to the fact that the Bible teaches it. Okay? Have you seen that before? You ever seen this stuff before? So you have to pay attention to what the Bible says. It does actually say it, and, and often it says it more than once. All right. Look at verse, uh, we're in Acts 11. Uh, verse 15, and he began to speak, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall, future, be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorify God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. That's what they're recognizing. Okay? All right. Um, Chapter 13 of Acts. Just commenting briefly and... uh, Sorry, tell me your name again. Priscilla. 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 Okay, Priscilla. That's a nice oh. biblical name. <laughs> Question? In 19, 19 it says they only went and were preaching only to the to the Jews, even after Peter made the... 19 what? Uh, 11, 19. Oh, Acts 11, 19? 11, yes. Yes. That's true. That's what they understood. Yeah, they understood that. I mean, it was difficult for these people to break out of that, uh, that mindset. And you, you have to understand why that is, because everybody else was, you know, were pagans and idolaters and, and so on. So they had this, this mindset. It was, it was Paul, and we're going to see in, in chapter 13, it was Paul that broke that mold and started to preach on his missionary journeys to the Gentiles. Okay? okay. Now, Priscilla, um, obviously you're coming right in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. So there's stuff that you might have one or two questions about, and I don't mind if you want to stick your hand up and, and say, well, what about this, and, and how did you get there? That's fine, okay? okay. Nobody else can do that, but, <laughs> uh, but we'll let Priscilla do that. Tell me and I ask. <laughs> All right. So, chapter 13. Just note a few things. Now, in the, uh, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Prophets, notice that. And I did call your attention to that last week. Uh, these prophets 
a there can only be there can only be one of us talking at the at the same time. Yeah. So you read quietly and I'll talk. How's that? All right. So prophets, okay. Um, these are not Old Testament prophets because now the Holy Spirit has has uh, fallen and Gentiles are being saved and the church is formed. That being the case, these are New Testament prophets. Do you see? So please notice that. We know what Old Testament prophets were. Here are New Testament prophets. They are not spoken of uh, in the same, uh, with the same, um, in the same terms or, or in the same variety and so on as Old Testament prophets, you know, like Elijah and Elisha and all these, because the times are different. Uh, things are different. We don't have any of these prophets writing books, although all of the apostles were, in a sense, prophets, weren't they? So we do have that. But then you have other prophets who were not, they didn't write books, but uh, they had this gift of being able to foretell things, okay? Which, by the way, is what a prophet basically is, okay? A prophet, sure, can be a preacher who denounces the sins of uh, his or her contemporaries. That's true. I mean, back in the biblical days, I don't. I'm very thin on modern day prophets. Okay. Um, in fact, I don't believe that they exist. But, but uh, at the same time, uh, these prophets they foretold the future. When we see them in action, and we don't very much, but we see Agabus, for example, in the book of Acts, they actually do prophesy. They, they foretell the future. Okay? And don't buy into this nonsense that's taught by many evangelicals because they've borrowed it from liberals that the prophets were mainly social reformers and forth tellers. That's absolute claptrap. Okay, then the test of a prophet was whether they could tell the future, not whether they could preach against their contemporaries. Of course they preached against their contemporaries. So they're mouthpieces of God. That's what prophet means. But the function of a prophet was mainly to speak about God's denunciation of the sins of the people, what will happen in the future because of it, and then also to tell them that God is a compassionate and a forgiving God and therefore he will bless them. Okay? If you want to look at that, have a great example of that, read the book of Micah. The book of Micah is a great example of, of what I've just said. Okay. <clears throat> so chapter 13, uh, he's preaching about this, the resurrection and so on. Verse 26 um, Paul here speaking uh, Oh, I, I did this last week so I don't need to talk about that, do I? You were paying attention last week, were you? So, Alright, so yeah so I, let's just move on because I've got a lot to do So let's move on to chapter 15 Chapter 15 is a key chapter in the book of Acts and a key chapter in the history uh, of 
that the Bible provides. Uh, because here you have this, this uh, coming together of the apostles, the spiritual men of the church, and they are recognizing something's happened and they are speaking to that in a, do- in a doctrinal way. So we need to pay attention to this. We also need to try to view it from their perspective coming at it rather than our perspective knowing what they said about it. Okay? And that will help us. And so, uh, you got Paul and Barnabas and they're uh, on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, let's see. Peter again in verse 6 down to verse 11 speaks about, again, the same thing. The Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles. And if you look at verse 9, that he made no distinction between us and them. Do you see that? Purifying their hearts by faith. God makes no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, Israel. What are you doing? Just read the text. Okay, just read it for the time being. Us and them. The them are the Gentiles. Oh, Gentiles. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought you said something else. Oh, okay. What did I say? Did I say that? All right. (laughs) Thank you. All right. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. You can correct me if I do something like that. All right. Thank you. Okay. We can edit that out of there. Okay. So, um, look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Okay? And after they had become silent, James. James is an interesting chap. This is James, the Lord's half-brother, who was an unbeliever in the Gospels, but has risen to great prominence in the early church, a very respected individual. And he speaks, and he answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's Peter. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes mainly from Amos chapter 9. And I told you to read that, didn't I, last week? How many of you actually did what I said? Okay. All right, so some of you are going to heaven. And then, <laughs> and then others, others you need to repent, Okay. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Okay, let's flip to Amos 9 and see what he's quoting here. Because Amos 9 is the wrap-up of the book of Amos, and it's a very important passage prophetically for the Davidic covenant. So, Hosea, Amos, let me get there one second. Uh, 
Okay. Verse 11. This is Amos 9. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my, my name says the Lord who does this thing. Very close, yes? Uh, what James is doing is just, uh, I think he's actually quoting from the, the uh, Septuagint or the, the Greek Old Testament. Uh, which it differs slightly in its wording, but it could be targeting, which is very common among Jewish commentators. But the gist is exactly the same. Now, is he saying that Amos 9 is fulfilled at, in his time with what's going on, with the Holy Spirit descending upon Jews and the Holy Spirit descending upon Gentiles and God making no distinction between the two of them? Is he saying it's fulfilled? If he's saying it's fulfilled, then we have to go back to Amos 9 and we have to say, hold on a minute, I thought that Amos was talking about the Davidic covenant and the kingdom because later on in in, uh, Amos 9, remember he says, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, and the mountain shall drip with sweet wine, blah, blah, blah. And talks about the, the land that I have given them at the end there. That is in line with the Davidic covenant and with the Abrahamic covenant and with the land promises to Israel, isn't it? So is James kind of, uh, is he blurring the lines here? Is he misappropriating a prophetic passage? Or is he trying to say, actually, yeah, we need to spiritualize this a little bit? None of those things. All he's doing is he's saying that what Amos is prophesying in this passage applies applies to what is going on because God is um, he is going to the Gentiles and calling out a people for his name. Do you see? Is he establishing the kingdom? No, and James doesn't say that he is. James does not go on and quote the, the uh, reapers overtaking the sowers, does he? He doesn't go on to deal with that because he knows that the, the uh, messianic kingdom isn't now. But doesn't mean that this passage doesn't apply. And notice he doesn't say this is fulfilled. He just says it's written. Do you see? And you can say it is written and be perfectly fine. You can use any passage of scripture to illustrate another passage of scripture. You don't have to say it's fulfilled because when you say it's fulfilled, you're saying something different. Do you see? And James is careful to choose his words. Now again, just to reiterate this. So Jesus dies on the cross, alright? And then Jesus goes up again and the Holy Spirit descends, okay, so then you have the church starts which is Jews and Gentiles Um, now Jesus is coming back and then the kingdom is going to be set up okay but all of the prophetic writings as we saw and the covenants whoops 
speak about the future for Israel and so on, and for the Gentiles, these all speak about physical land. They all speak about the nation of Israel. They speak about the king and the kingdom and the temple and all of that stuff. Okay? They also speak in terms of not only the cross, but also of the second coming. They don't divide the two. Do you remember, remember we covered that? They don't divide them. So Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Micah 5, 2, um, Zechariah 9, 9 and, and passages like that. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Those kinds of passages, uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2a, those passages forge the first and second comings together. But um, when Jesus comes, he dies because he's rejected. And then he tells people that they shouldn't look for the kingdom immediately. So you have this gap, remember? between the fulfilment of some parts of those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and the other part of them. That's what we call the first and second comings. What fills that gap? What fills the gap is this. Okay? The church. They couldn't see that in the Old Testament. They couldn't see that in uh, the Gospels either. But we see it now, and they're starting to see it here. That's what all this is about. Okay? So, that means the only Bible they had is the the Hebrew Scriptures, which means if they're going to get scriptural support for what's going on here, they have to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And so, what's, what's happening? Peter has reported that God has called out Gentiles for his people. So, what's James going to do? for scriptural corroboration of that, he's going to go back to a scripture that actually teaches that that is something that God intends to do. So he goes to Amos 9. But he is careful about the way that he quotes it, what parts of it he quotes, and he doesn't say it's fulfilled. Are we good? Uh, The reason that I'm, again, I'm... uh, Emphasizing this is because um, people that believe the church is, uh, has been changed into Israel, or however you want to say it, Israel, a church is the new Israel, um, or the, the church is the expanded Israel, and all of these other euphemisms that they use nowadays. Uh, they will say that that is what James is teaching, but he, he doesn't teach that at all. That's what they're reading into it. He's just recognizing that there are scriptural grounds for what Peter and Paul have been teaching in that uh, get-together. All right, let's move on. So, chapter... Uh, we'll go to... Uh, we're going to move on to chapter 24 of Acts. And this is Paul, this is years later, and this is Paul before Felix. And now, you know, he's, uh, he's in trouble, and he has to give a defense 
for his actions. So that's what he's doing here. And he says in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, the Jews call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Uh, That's a simple thing, I know, to say, but it does have ramifications. Uh, He says, I believe the things that are written in the law and the prophets. Folks, if these replacement, I'm going to call them what I think they are, replacement theologians, these replacement people who believe the church is now Israel and God's through with Israel. The only hope that Israel has is that if Jews believe in Jesus and give up the fact that there's a national identity for Israel and join the church. Okay? That's what they believe. Um, Now, if that's true, I hope that you can see that what Paul is saying here in his defense makes absolutely no sense. Because what would he have to do to the law and the prophets in order to believe in replacement theology. Well, let's just be nice and call it covenant theology. Okay? What would you have to do to the law and the prophets? You'd either have to throw them out. We didn't want to, wouldn't want to do that, would he? So well, he'd have to spiritualize them or he'd have to typologize them, do you see? Now, if that's the case, then he's actually not telling the truth. Believing all that's written in the law and the prophets? Yeah, but Paul, you don't believe what's written in the law and the prophets. You spiritualize it or you typologize it and then you believe your typology. Do you see? Felix and the Jews who were there present would have said, yeah, but he doesn't believe it. Because it says this and he, he says it teaches something else. It says all of these promises have been given to Israel. Land, I can show you in the Old Testament where the land promise has been covenanted by God. I can show you where the temple has been covenanted by God, where the kingdom and uh, the king and the, uh, the importance of Israel among the nations and Jerusalem being the great city of God. I can show you these things throughout the Old Testament. This is what God promises again and again and again. But Paul... They could say, if he was into typology and so on, Paul doesn't believe any of that stuff. And that's what we have against him. He doesn't believe what the law and the prophets actually say. Dear Paul, you believe that these were types and shadows of the reality which is the church. Are you getting what I'm saying? You're not getting it? All right. What I'm saying is, look, let's, let's approach this from another thing, another angle. Look at uh, verse, where is it? I can't see it. Verse 14. Okay? Keep your eye on verse 14. Now, <clears throat> take this off. 
Let's see how much you guys have learned. <clears throat> All right, so the covenants. Rattle them off for me. Okay. Abrahamic. Hold on. There's no way up here. Yeah. What? Who's what? There isn't a creation covenant. Okay. So there is priestly. Yes. Okay. Paul, I'm just taking a sharp in, intake of breath as I have my back to you right now for even thinking there's a creation covenant. All right. Mosaic. Yes. Thank you. Come on. Paul needs to, Paul needs to redeem my faith in him over here. Come on. Uh, Davidic, yes, thank you. Paul, come on, one more. You got one more? New, thank you. Who said that? Was that Paul or is that? Okay, so, yeah. All right, so. All right. I'll, I'll light a candle for you. Okay. So. Yes, I know. Well, I know. I know. I know. But I can do it because I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to do it. Okay, so. Okay, so. Look, this one has to do with creation. Paul? Is that what you meant? Alright, this has to do with creation. Alright? This has to do with descendants or seed. Now, seed here, generally, nearly always in Genesis through to Deuteronomy, means descendants. Okay? Plural. Sometimes it means, means descendant. Singular, as in Christ. Okay? Genesis 22.18 is a, an example of that. Okay? So, seed, um, land, thank you, and blessing for the Gentiles or the nations. I'll call them the nations. All right? So that's the Abrahamic. The priestly obviously has to do with the Zadokite line and therefore the temple. The Mosaic has to do with the law, but it also has to do with Israel and their role as a light to the Gentiles, which they fail utterly on. So this is a temporary covenant. This is going to be replaced by that. Okay? This covenant has to do with what? Okay? A kingdom. And throne, yeah. And this has to do with redemption. And it's this one that is needed to kickstart all of these. Okay? Without this, these can't come true. Alright? So, and this is, is this a, a thing or a person? The new covenant. This is a person. Okay? This is Jesus himself. His body, his blood, he's the mediator of the new covenant. He is the new covenant. Okay? We'll get more into that when we get to the book of Hebrews. Okay? But I've already shown you from Isaiah 42 and 49 that the Messiah is a covenant, okay? So, uh, there's all of this stuff that's promised by oath to God. I have showed you that God expects people, if they take an oath, to keep it. Okay? He takes oaths very seriously. Very seriously. 
So when God swears an oath, he's not a hypocrite, he's not going to change it, and he is not going to uh, annul it if he's the only one who's been obligated to keep it. Like in the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the priestly, and the Davidic, and the new. Okay, The Mosaic is different because Israel also said they'd keep it. Do you see? That's kind of different that way. So if that's the case, God is under obligation to bring these through to fulfillment. But the problem is people are lost and people are sinners. That's why redemption is needed. But once they're redeemed, God has to fulfill these covenants. You see? He's obligated to do it. That's what I spent weeks and weeks and weeks teaching you in the first two courses. Okay? So... You don't have to look as though, you know, you don't have to feel um, as though I'm putting any pressure on you or anything like that. But that's what I've been teaching you, okay? Now, what, what I've been teaching you in abbreviated form is to believe the law and the prophets. The law being the Torah, okay, and the prophets, the prophetical literature. And I've shown you that they gel, they come together, and that they're also believed in the carryover into the New Testament. In the Gospels, they still believe that stuff. Alright? And they still teach, Jesus still teaches it. And we've been doing that so far in this course. And I think I've shown that. So, now we're midway through the book, well, nearly the end of the book of Acts. And Paul is saying, I believe all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets. But when he says that, does he have uh, his tongue planted firmly in his cheek? Does he mean something different than what Jesus meant? Does he mean something different than what the apostles meant in Acts chapter 1 or Acts chapter 3, which we did last week? Do you remember that? I drilled that into you about the restoration, the days of restoration and so on. Yes? Does he believe something different? There's no indication that he does. In fact, as I will show you, there's every indication, <coughs> there's no indication that he doesn't. Sorry. There's every indication that he does. And I'll show you in a minute that that's the case. So, <coughs> now, the point is this. If Paul had believed that the church is the new Israel, are you with me there? So that the nation of Israel and the land promises to Israel and the Davidic covenant of a, of a throne in Israel and the priestly covenant and so on, that all of that now is not literally going to come through. Can you see that what he believed the law and the prophets said is different, not only to what it says, but also to what people before him believed? And also different to the Jews who were here, present, trying to convict him. Do you see that? And what they could do is they could point to him and they could say, you don't believe it. You believe this new thing called the church is going to inherit all of these promises. And you don't believe Israel's going to inherit any of them unless Israel, well, they don't. There's no land promise for Israel. 
you know, no specific land promise, no earthly reign. They get absorbed, some of them, into the church. And what I'm saying is, you cannot put that thought into Paul's words in Acts 24 unless you're willing to say that he's disingenuous. That he's, he's mincing his words. And so I, that's why I'm putting the emphasis there. Now, do you understand what I'm trying to drive at? Okay. Um, so he makes that point. Now I'm going to make it even clearer for all of you because we're going to go to Acts 26. Acts 26. Now Paul is giving a defense before Agrippa. Now Agrippa, not only is Agrippa another uh, very important governor, but Agrippa knows Jewish theology. Let's look at this. Chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. All right, well, if he's expert in it, okay, then if Paul starts spiritualizing, then Agrippa's going to say, hold on a minute, it doesn't say that. That's not what the prophets teach. Do you see? Remember, there's no New Testament here. He can't, he can't say, yeah, but Agrippa, you don't, you see, this is my new book. This is, this is, this is Romans, where I, I teach. You know, he's going to get his head chopped off, isn't he? If he tries that. Agrippa knows the Jewish scriptures and he's going to be able to, to see whether Paul is interpreting them correctly or not. Look at what Paul does. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made to God my, by God to our fathers. Who, the, who do you think the fathers are? Abraham, Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Yeah. yeah, the patriarchs, yes. To this promise, next three words, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. He believes the 12 tribes are intact. He believes that the 12 tribes have a hope. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. And then he points to Jesus. Because Jesus offered them the kingdom. Because he is the king. And they rejected him. And now God has, has uh, gone to the Gentiles. But as far as the interpretation of the Old Testament is concerned, as far as the covenant promises are concerned, Paul doesn't spiritualize anything. He says, no, 
that hope is alive. I believe it. This is the end of the book of Acts. I mean, there's just a few more chapters to go. And Paul hasn't changed the tune. All right. Just one more thing, and that is Acts 27. And this is a hermeneutical point that I just want to drive home. Uh, Scripture does this occasionally, and we miss it very often because we're not paying attention. This has to do with the storm. Do you remember the storm that Paul's in? And... um, Paul, he, he has to restrain the, um, the people or the, the, the sailors and so on from killing the, the slaves and so on. All right. Verse 21. Uh, can, I, can I start here? Do you want me to start earlier and get the context? Do you guys know the book of Acts well enough to, for me to do this? Yeah? Uh, if you don't, then read this chapter and you'll get the context, okay? But after long abstinence, abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them, he's on the ship, and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying do not be afraid Paul you must be brought before Caesar and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart men for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. What point is he making? What point am I making? God means what he says. Okay? God means what he says. I believe God that it will be just what he told me. Not something different. Not spiritualized. Not types of anything. Exactly what he told me. You can take God literally. Of course, figures of speech, we all use figures of speech. Do you understand that you cannot actually put together a decent sentence without a metaphor? Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. Uh, he has a, uh, an essay on the metaphor where he deals with this. Okay? Tolkien also understood this, that we use metaphors all the time, but we don't realize that we're doing it. So, of course... When we say literally, we also we include the, the fact that we use metaphors. But what we are talking about when we're talking about literal is that there is a correspondence between the meaning of the words and the meaning of the thing we're talking about. And there's not a, a, a change and, and a morphing that goes on. In fact, if you want to find out what the word literally means, you know what's a good thing to do? Don't go to replacement theologians. Don't go to half of evangelicalism. Do go to the dictionary and it will tell you. 
and give you examples. It's amazing, you know, what can be cleared up if you will just, you know, not follow people who are reading their theology into the Bible and just let the Bible say what it says. And, um, you know, as long as you put some uh, qualifiers, we don't mean literalistically, but we can use the word literally because people do use the word literally all the time. And so we should take God literally. Do you believe God literally raised Jesus from the dead? Yes. No, are you sure? It wasn't a type? Well, how do you know? You're not a wooden literalist, are you? Do you see? Of course we literally believe Jesus died on the cross. We literally believed he was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. We literally believe that uh, he he uh, ascended. We literally believe he's coming back again. In fact, as I've taught you a long time ago, we literally believe all of the main doctrines of the scriptures. From creation to the existence of God to salvation by grace through faith to all of them, we literally believe them. The question is never about that. The question is about yeah, the, the way that we use our deductive faculties with passages like Acts 15 and the Gospels and so on, where we read the church into where the church isn't, or where we read things into the scriptures that the scripture's not saying. It happen, happens a lot, I assure you. This is why I have to kind of take it slowly so that you, you think about um, how to read the Bible and you think about uh, how often this, uh, this lesson is brought up in Scripture. Okay, so you're good with that? Can we now go to Galatians? All right. Why am I going to the book of Galatians? Because Galatians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. It's written about A.D. 50 by the Apostle Paul. And Galatians talks about, it's written to uh, mainly Gentiles, of course, but there are Judaizers who have come in and they are bringing parts of the law, particularly male circumcision, back into the teaching of this Gentile church saying that you, you know that you have to be circumcised if you want to be you know really a person of God okay okay so that's what he's dealing with uh, circumcision is uh, it belongs to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17 and this part of it uh, the descendants part of it okay the seed so it belongs to that which has to do with Abraham Isaac Jacob and it belongs here in the Mosaic because the Mosaic Covenant is connected to the Abrahamic Covenant because they should, if they'd have been a covenant, realized they were a covenant people under God, they should have obeyed God. But they didn't. Okay? But because this was not sufficient to bring this about, then just because this goes away doesn't mean this goes away. Do you see? So, 
circumcision is still important for the Jew because of the Abrahamic covenant, but not for the Gentile. If a Jew tries to bring it in for the Gentile teaching, then he's, he's bringing it in because of this, and, well, they couldn't t- keep the law, and they certainly shouldn't be foisting it on Gentiles. Um, this is where one has to be careful of uh, Messianic Judaish, Judaism okay, of today, because some of these, well, quite a lot of them actually, do teach not that you have to be circumcised, but they, they come real close to it. We have an inside track. We, you know, we worship on the Sabbath day and we do this and we do that because that's what Jesus or Yeshua would have done. You see? That's what they do. It's claptrap. It's claptrap, okay? Don't believe it. It's claptrap. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, folks. Okay? If you get these people coming in and say, yeah, but our traditions, our culture, you guys killed your own Messiah because of your interpretations. Because you couldn't understand the Bible. Don't try and tell me what the Bible says. I'll look at it for myself. Don't bring in your culture. Don't bring in your, you know, your feast days and all of that stuff. I'm not interested unless I can see it in the Bible. Then I'm interested. If I'm stepping all over your feet, I'm sorry, but this needs to be said because it creates all kinds of divisions and damage in the scriptures. And this is God's word. If they bring something in that's not in here, put it in the trash as far as I'm concerned, unless they can prove it from the scripture. Okay? It's important, folks. Why? Because God does not want messianic Jewish congregation saying this is the way it should be done because this is the way Jesus did it. What he wants is he wants Jews and Gentiles together following the dictates of the New Testament. Okay? Not the Jews saying, oh yeah, but this is the Jewish way. Prayer shawls and all that stuff. Okay? It really is uh, sometimes it's hard to break through that, but it's really important. By the way, uh, I have friends who have Messianic Jewish ministries, okay? So don't think that I'm rubbishing all of them. I'm not. But quite a lot of them, it's a good way of making a quick buck. It really is. So, having said that, and I'm getting hot, can we open that door here, uh, for a sec? Um, having said that and one of my teachers by the way was Arnold Fruchtenbaum so, um, who is a major teacher in that movement but he's, he's against a lot of that stuff he teaches, he, pro, you know, he evangelizes Jews so his focus is on that and he does celebrate that stuff because he's a Jew but he doesn't push it on the Gentiles um, So here in Galatians, 
something one step worse than that. It's 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 uh, the Jews saying, yeah, you need to be circumcised, okay? And Paul, I mean, he's really if you if you think I'm, you know, I, I've gone away from my normal placid self, and I got a little bit, you know, hot under the cold, just a little bit there. Just listen to the Apostle Paul. Okay? He says this. He says, If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In chapter 1, verse 8, and then verse 9. He repeats it. This is a Christian cursing people. We're supposed to bless and not curse. Why is Paul getting so... He's a Jew. Why is he so frustrated about this? Because he sees the damage it causes. Okay? It, that's why. And so, if, if uh, I think God's people need to be upset if, if people add things to the gospel and say, we've got an inside track, which is basically what they say. You've got to understand the Jewish feast from our perspective. Actually, no, I don't. I have to understand it from this perspective. Because um, most, of the, most of the Jewish materials that are used by these ministries don't come from the time of Jesus. Not from what's called Second Temple Judaism. They don't come from that. They come from the Talmudic times three and four hundred years later. They have nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with the interpretation of Scripture. No, the Pharisees, actually, they, were, they, they came out in the... They, they didn't exist after AD 70. But uh, well, what happened is... After the temple was destroyed, uh, a man called Johannan ben Zekai was allowed by the Romans to go to, uh, to Jaffa on the coast and, uh, and kind of set up a little school there by the Romans. And he, you know, people came there, scholars came there, and what they had to do is that they had to say, well, look, our whole religion... Um, orbits around the temple and the temple's not there. And we're not going to believe in Jesus. So they have to build Judaism up without the temple from the ground upwards. And that's what they ended up doing. And uh, the teachings from that, the first, uh, they, they did get some, some older teachings from Hillel and people like that uh, from Jesus' time, but not an awful lot of them uh, and they put those together in what's called the Mishnah, which was uh, completed around AD 200, something like that. So that's 170 years after Jesus. But then that was included into the Talmud, and the Talmuds weren't written until 400 and 500 AD. Okay? And that's the storehouses that they quote from. Now remember, this is the same mentality of people that 
reject Jesus as the Messiah and put a hedge around the law, why would you want to be interested in their interpretation of Scripture? You see? So that's the problem. That's the problem. And I hope that if you if explain that way, you see the danger of it. I'm not saying don't have a Passover Seder. I'm not saying that. Have one by all means. Yeah, I mean, have it. Learn. You know, and there are things in there providentially that you'll learn from because God has put them in there providentially as a witness to the Jews. But it's not scripture. Okay, it's not scripture. All right, so Galatians chapter 3. You say, why do, I, why do you go off on all of these little rabbit trails here? A, because of my attention span. And then B, more importantly, because uh, I really think, I, I try to go through these and hit these little things because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. You should, but you're not going to hear it anywhere else. And you can go away and disagree with me, but hopefully you'll also think and think, actually, he's right. Or actually, I'm not sure if he's right, but he's right about one thing, and that is, this is the book of God, and I can read it as well as a Jew can. And if they are bringing something in that's not in here, then I certainly shouldn't keep it on the same authority as this and think that they have an inside line. They don't. So, Chapter 3 of Galatians, let's read from verse 1 and uh, we're going to go through this chapter and look how he speaks about the Abrahamic covenant. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? You know, through the preaching of the gospel and so on. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That is, by, you know, being circumcised. Or or teaching that you have to be circumcised. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, by faith. Just as Abraham, and he quotes from Genesis 15:6, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he's, he's now going to the Abrahamic covenant. Again, he's going to, because um, um, he, he does it later on in Romans, he's going to go to this key text in 15.6 of Genesis to teach faith. Faith is where it's at. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying Jesus is going to die on the cross on a Roman cross and no it doesn't say that does it you just thought that's what he said because you saw the word gospel okay 
But Paul's telling you, right, what the gospel in this context is. Saying, in you all the nations of nations shall be blessed. What's that a quotation from? 12.3. Okay, Abrahamic covenant here. Okay, this part of it. Yeah, the nations. Okay? So, he's talking about Genesis 15.6 about faith and then he's talking about this part of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? The nations. Does he talk about land? Does he talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the descendants? No, he doesn't. He's talking about that part because he's talking to Gentiles. All right. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. He's talking about believing. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's why, it's from Deuteronomy, that's why the Mosaic Covenant had to be replaced. That's why it was temporary. Because you couldn't be justified through it, through works. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, you've got to do it. You, you know, If you set the bar high, you've got to get over that bar. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law, folks? Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> And, and um, um, early he's going to say, you know, it, that uh, Christ took the curse for us as well. <clears throat> he's re- uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on the tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. What is the blessing of Abraham? Tell me. In the context, what's the blessing of Abraham? Honestly, it's not a difficult one. It's not a difficult one. The nations, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Honestly, I'm not trying to catch you out here. Occasionally, I, occasionally I am, but I'm not that time. Um, it's this part of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? That we might, verse 14, receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit that is promised in the Old Testament, not in Genesis, But in the prophets, remember, they speak about the Holy Spirit in connection with the regeneration of Israel, but also the the whole world. And the Gentiles will will receive the Spirit too. In fact, that's what we read from James in Acts chapter 15, is it not? You see that? 
Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it, unless you're a covenant theologian. Then you can do anything you want with it. No, you can't. You see, the covenants are, they're like, um, they're like nails or, 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 I'm trying to think of the word. I know. Great big um, pins that are uh, slammed down into the concrete by a steam hammer or something. Okay? You are not going to dislodge them. Okay? You are not going to move them. You're going to have to deal with them. Now, you can either construct your theology knowing that they're there and knowing that you can't move them and you can't move what they say and you can't change them or you're going to have to pretend they're not there. Maybe dress them up as a, you know, a fancy tree or put some flowers on them or something like that and pretend it's not really there. And then you can go on your merry way. But that, God drove that thing down there and he wants you to pay attention to it. Now, when God makes a covenant, folks, you cannot annul it and you can't add to it. it am I misinterpreting what Paul is saying? Of course not. Bless you. But, but isn't that what Paul's point is? He says, even if it's a man's covenant, you don't do that. How much more do you not do it when God makes a covenant? Well, God's made these covenants, which means you don't monkey in around with them. Okay. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, that's plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So that is this part of the promise, but then the individual, the promised Messiah, yes? Now, what, not, what he's not doing here is he's not saying that all of the mention of seed or descendants in the Old Testament or in Genesis is Jesus. That would obviously be ridiculous. Okay? Because who was the seed of Abraham? The promised seed of Abraham. Isaac, of course. And God made a big ballyhoo about that in Genesis 17, if you want to read that. Okay? So obviously that's important, but Paul's not dealing with that. He's dealing just with the Christological part of it. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. What promise is he talking about in this context? The promise of land? No. The promise of blessing to the Gentiles is the, is the better way of putting it. Okay? For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. 
What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, that's Christ, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate, mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness would have been by the law, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law shows us the need of saving faith. But after faith has come, we are in no, uh, no need to be under a tutor, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, that's not water baptism, folks. Okay, that's spirit baptism. Have put on Christ. You can't put on Christ by going through the water. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's just talking about the way God sees you. He's not saying that there's no gender distinctions and he's not saying that there isn't a distinction between Jew and Gentile or slave and free. Of course there are. But he says in Christ, in your salvation, as far as God is concerned, those distinctions aren't there. Okay? As far as your salvation. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 8, again to remind you, the scripture was saying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's the promise. Justification by faith, not works, not circumcision. So when he says you're all Abraham's seed, is he saying, oh the church is the new Israel? That's what covenant theologians do with that verse. But he's not, he's not there. He's not anywhere near that. And you don't have to do that. All you have to do is realize that he's quoting about, from this promise about Christ and that we know that the Holy Spirit's going to be given to Christ from the prophets. And then he's talking about the blessing to the nations. But he's not talking about the nation that will come through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he's not talking about the land that God deeded by land grant to uh, Israel. Nowhere, nowhere in that chapter does he bring the land up. Yes? Isn't it true that we are grafted in... Israel is not grafted into the church. We're not in Romans yet. That's a good question, but we're not in Romans yet. (laughs) Verse 13, when um, Paul says us, he's referring to the Jews. Uh, Let me read it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. No, he's talking about everyone. Everyone. Yeah, because Christ died for everyone. Yeah. No, they're not under the law as far as covenant, but they are under the law as far as um, the requirements of God. Because the law, apart from the Sabbath, 
The law is repeated, the Ten Commandments, repeated in the New Testament. All nine of them are repeated apart from the Sabbath one. Why are they repeated? Because they're universal. Is it ever okay to be an idolater? Is it ever okay to steal? Is it ever okay to disobey your mother or father? Or, you know, dishonor your mother or father? Is it ever okay, you know, to commit adultery or whatever? Covet? No. They're universal. So, yes, we're always under those. And that's what he means. Chapter 6 of uh, Galatians. Um, And again, if you want to go back and read Galatians and read the, the context of these better, then by all means do. I can't cover all this ground obviously in these classes. But what I am going to do, just for the sake of context again here, uh, I'll try not to stop uh, until I get to the text that I want to comment on. But I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, okay? For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Gesundheit. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desire that you, to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Can you close that door? Please, thank you. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Do any of you have even the Israel of God in your translation there? 16. None of you have even the Israel of God? Okay, if you had anyone, so no one's had got an ESV here. Okay, the ESV says even the Israel of God. Okay, 
Now, there's a big difference between and the Israel of God and even the Israel of God. If you say, um, verse 16, sorry, in Galatians 6.16, if you say, um, those who keep this rule and Israel of God what's that doing? what is the and what's the function of the and? it's not inclusive no it's separating them yeah as many as do this and the Israel of God you see because he's writing to Gentiles okay now are the Israel of God the people that are trying to get them to be circumcised no they're not (laughs) they're not because Paul wants them to be cursed okay because that's a false teaching so obviously he's not talking about those people that are teaching a false gospel. Okay? Notice he wants the blessing of God to be upon them. Peace and mercy be upon them. Verse 16. Well, he's not going to wish peace and mercy on the people he's cursed in chapter 1. Do you see that? But not all of the Israel of God are teaching that. In other words, Paul is still, he still has hope for the true Israel. Do you see? The remnant. The people that, that God is going to save and, and, and bring about the land promises and the Davidic covenant promises and the priestly covenant. He's still got that in his head. The Israel of God. So he distinguishes between the two. Read the verse again, please. Fifteen. Oh, sixteen, yes. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Two separate groups. Do you see that? You don't see that? Okay. Why don't you... And peace be upon them and upon them and upon... Israel God. Okay, so, so how many people, how many do you have? Two, well, two. Two groups. But the and is peace upon both groups. Yes, so yes, of course, that's correct. I mean, that interpretation is correct. But all I'm doing is, is asking you why the and is in there. And the and is in there to separate the two groups. Otherwise, he wouldn't have separated. He would have said peace and mercy upon all those that do it. Mm-hmm. You see? Mm-hmm. All right. So, sorry about that. You are correct. Mariana. The, um, the many that walk is a distinction that applies to both of them. It's a distinction to the Gentiles and a distinction to the Israel who are, who are not false teachers. No. Well, well, the many are the Gentiles because he's writing to Gentiles. But the is- you are correct in saying the Israel of God are those Jews who are saved who are not teaching this false gospel. 
but he's still dividing them. Okay? Unless you're a covenant theologian. And then you're going to remove this word and you're going to replace it with this word. Okay. That's an ESV. That's, I it's an ESV. Now, Priscilla, you're not the native English speaker. You speak English pretty well, probably. But reasonably well? Yeah. Okay. So, do you know if, if, do you know the difference here between that and that? Yes. Okay. What would that do that that doesn't do? Or what does that do that that doesn't do? If it says, peace be upon those who keep this rule, even the Israel of God, what is it doing? It's identifying this group with the Israel of God, yes? Mm-hmm. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you okay with that? Yes. All right. I ask you because you're a non-English speaker, but you understand the difference, okay? But if you, if you put and there, you see a distinction. Okay. So this is crucial, you see? How you translate this um, conjunction is really important. Now, this is the Greek word chi. And um, the Greek word chi, the primary meaning of the Greek word is and. It has secondary and tertiary meanings, one of them being even. But when you're translating something, do you go automatically to the tertiary meaning or the secondary meaning? No. You go and see if the primary meaning of the word fits. And it certainly does. Especially it fits because Paul has, has talked about here, he's talking to Gentiles and he's talked about Jews who are teaching a false gospel why would you think he's putting all of the Jews in that category? Why wouldn't you think that he's, he's talking about, he also has in mind Jews who are not in that category, who are godly, and who are looking for the covenant hope, just as he was. So he has you, Gentiles, he's writing to Gentiles, and then he also has hope for the Israel of God. So, and fits the context much better and fits his argument much better, even is an intrusion of theology, of somebody's theology into this translation. There is no reason not to translate it, translate this as and, unless your theology says there isn't any distinction between the Gentiles and Israel because the Gentile church is Israel. Do you see? But that is not what Paul... You didn't get that from Paul. That is a person reading their theology into Galatians 6.16. And I think it's dishonest. I think it's dishonest. Of God, those are believing Jews. In this context, it would be. Believing godly Jews who get it and are not trying to uh, teach a false gospel. Okay? Yes. Alright, so, um, you okay so far?
I think no, I think your New American Standard, you, your modern New American right. Standard has no, and. Mine. Oh, okay. yes. Mine, mine has the okay. Mine yes. Oh, yes. New American Standard has it right. Yes. Yeah, but the ESV is translated mainly by covenant theologians. Really? Yes. Yes. The ESV is, well, it's, it's actually not translate, it's not a translation. And by the way, we use ESV in our church, so I'm not knocking completely the ESV, but you have to watch sometimes. The fact of the matter is, the ESV is the old, uh, new RSV, but it's been, uh, conservatized and kind of dusted off and repristinated and so on, but by covenant theologians. And so you have to watch for those places where they're reading their covenant theology into some text of scripture, and this is one of them. You always check. Because a covenant theologian will go here for a proof text for the fact that the church is now Israel. Well, the church is now Israel because you just made it Israel. (laughs) Because you ignored the primary meaning of the word Kai. Alright. Romans. Don't worry. We are not going to go all the way through Romans. I have just a few things to say, at least tonight. But we begin with the first verse. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Um, What is the gospel that was promised in the Holy Scriptures? That Jesus would die on a Roman cross... And no, but the prophets do teach Isaiah, Daniel, they do teach that Messiah has come and is, and is killed. Yeah. Okay, they do teach that. Okay, so that it is there. You know, uh, through his, uh, was it through his sacrifice, my, my servant will justify many. Remember that? Uh, the, the, the Messiah, the prince, will be cut off, but not for himself. So that's what he's referring to. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. What covenant's that? Davidic covenant. According to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Well, why does he, why is he, Talk about the seed of David. What's, what's the importance of the seed of David? I mean, we're now about AD 56. We're now, you know, 20 odd years into the church age. Since Pentecost. Since Jesus went up to heaven. Why are we talking about David? What's the point? I mean, there's not going to be a kingdom, so why bring David into it? You could say through his line, but again, I mean, it's not, it doesn't matter, does it, really? Not, not theologically for, for his point here, 
I mean, if he's talking about Jewishness and, and, and so on, it, it's important. But he's talking to Gentiles here. I just bring that to your attention. Go to chapter 2. <laughs> Why do I bring it to your attention? I want to point these things out so you can see they're there and then later on I'll bring the pieces together. Okay? Alright. So chapter 2. Uh, he begins chapter 2 by saying, You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Alright. And then he goes down all of that first. Verse 10 he says, Glory, honor, peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For there's no partiality with God. As many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Uh, then he says, verse 14, When Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't, they don't have the Jewish scriptures and so on, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having law, are a law to themselves. In, in other words, that they, uh, they're doing it out of conscience who show the work of the law written in their hearts, that's natural revelation he speaks about in chapter 1, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men, generally, by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, so here what he's saying is that if you're under the law or if you're keeping the law, like Jews, that you, can, you are condemned... Okay, but you're going to be judged by that law, and if you don't, but you you're trying to uh, you're trying to keep the law because it's a universal law. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do this, don't do that. Yes. If they try to keep the law, then in a sense uh, they have just as much chance of being justified as a Jew who's who's got the law. Do you see that? And then he turns to the Jews, particularly in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he goes through some of the Ten Commandments, does he not? You preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you, uh, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Oh, of course. The, your, the law is universal, and we all break it, whether we know it, like many Gentiles, or whether, or like Jews, or don't know it, like the Gentiles. We still know that we shouldn't steal, we know that we uh, shouldn't commit idolatry and so on. <clears throat> I'm going somewhere with this. 
For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, if, if, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? You see the argument? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, again it's if, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. All right. So, our supersessionists are going to be all over this one. And they're going to say, ah, you see, this is saying that, that uh, we're spiritual Israel. Because Paul says, you're not a Jew outwardly, you're a Jew inwardly. Okay? And the circumcision is the one of the Holy Spirit. And I've received the Holy Spirit, therefore I am a new covenant Jew or Israelite because I belong to spiritual Israel. That's the argument. And you can see how they might reason that. Because you might think at first glance that Paul is actually denying Jewishness. That Jewishness means anything at all. But all he's doing here is talking to the Jew and he's talking about the way that the Jews boast in the law. Okay? Do you see that? Verse 17? Well, you can't boast in the law because you don't keep it. The only way that you can keep uh, or be right with God is to set the law or dependence on the law aside and trust in Paul's gospel. Do you see that? If you s- put the law aside and don't try and boast in it and think you're better than the Gentiles because of it, then, and you trust in Jesus, then you are a Jew inwardly, which is what a real Jew has to be. Do you see? Now, you're still Jewish, you're still an Israelite, but you're a true Jew because you've accepted the Messiah. He is not saying here that Gentiles can be Jews. Again, let me read it. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, because that's what they're boasting in. That's the law. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. So you put aside the Mosaic Covenant and you believe in um, Jesus Christ as your Saviour. You're justified by faith and you are a true Jew. All right. In order to drive that home, chapter 4. Well, 
What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Well, they were boasting, the Jews, weren't they? In chapter 2. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's Genesis 15.6 again. Okay, look at the reasoning. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So when you go to work, okay, and at the end of the month, you don't get your check, you're going to say something about it, because you've worked for it. Do you see? And you expect to be paid for it. But you cannot do that with God. You can work your socks off for all of your life and God does not have to give you everlasting life. He doesn't have to forgive you because all the time that you've been spending being religious, you've been sinning. So you need another way. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Ah, that's what you need to do. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Quoting from the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Well, He's going to teach, and he's already taught in Galatians, that through the law, through the Mosaic Covenant, he will impute sin. Yes? Are we okay with that? If you're trying to keep the law, God will impute sin to you. So, if David is saying, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, his hope is not in keeping the law, his hope is in the mercy of God. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, let's hold on. The promise to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? And what does he mean by world? Nations again. The 
this is very important. What's, what's the context? This is why I went through all of chapter 4 until I got here. What's the context? What's he talking about? You should know I'd ask you questions. The kingdom of God? Nope. No. He doesn't say the kingdom of God here. What's he talking about? Don't try and read something into this that, that is not in the text. Well, that's not there in the text. It doesn't say the new covenant. I mean, you're right, but he doesn't say it in the text. Let's just use the language that he uses. What's he talking about? Yes. Yes, that's what he's talking about. So, he's talking about justification by faith and not by works, yes? So, he's, and he's, he's relaying that now to Abraham's faith, okay, in uh, Genesis 15:6, and he says the promise verse 13 that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith um, it's really important then that we understand what Paul means by heir of the world now I will tell you nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that Abraham would be the heir of the world but, and we'll actually go on and see what Paul means by it. What do you think Paul means by it in the context? Have a guess. The nations. What, in what way the nations? That the world would be saved through Christ. Right? The, the, not just the Jews, right. but also the Gentiles will be saved. Yeah. That's exactly right. So the world here is talking about um, salvation is not restricted to the Gentile, to the Jews, excuse me. It's not restricted to the Jews, but it goes out to the world. Yes, yes. This is the way that a, a covenant theologian will interpret world. He'll interpret world as real estate the planet Earth. Why will, he, why will he do that? Well, that gets rid of this. Okay? Because then what they do is that they say, yeah, but the land that was promised to Israel, okay, that's just a little bit of the Earth. Isn't this better? That Abraham would be the heir of the whole planet? Meaning the whole, you know, topographic Earth. And they're interpreting it that way because they're getting rid- they believe that the land promise has been abrogated. Okay? That would be changing covenant. Exactly. But in the context, he's not talking about land. Okay? He's not talking about real estate. He's talking about salvation. You can have salvation without being promised land. And particularly the Gentiles, the nations, have not been promised land. They've not been deeded in a covenant land, but Israel has. So is there a way of interpreting Paul here and the word world that doesn't mean land? Of course there is. And you just told us, Zeke, John 
world means not just Jews, but the whole of the nations, the whole peoples. Which makes complete sense in the context, does it not? That's what Paul's argument's about. And just to drive that home, let's read on and Paul interprets this himself. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. How is he the father of us all? Physically? No, he's not. He's only physically the father of the Jews and, well, because he messed up with Hagar, father of others too, but um, but to the Jews is what he's talking about here uh, in the, in the physical context but here father is all spiritually must be what he's talking about that's what he means by uh, Abraham being the heir of the world as it is written I have made you a father of many nations okay there's a, a context there that's chapter 12 verse 2 Abraham Abrahamic covenant which part of the Abrahamic covenant? This one. Again, he's not even dealing with the land. He's dealing with this. So you don't need to, to wipe this out because if you wipe land and, and physical descendants, as far as you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the tribes and so on, if you, if you get rid of these two, you get rid of that, you get rid of this, and you have one big glob called the church which is the new Israel but Paul has not given you any license to go there this makes perfect sense if you just let the covenants say what they say and leave them alone and people say yeah but why doesn't he talk about the land well it's because he's talking to Gentiles that's why because we're in this phase where Jesus has gone up Okay, Jesus has not come back yet. We're in this phase. Israel is going to be dealt with over here. What's going to happen here? The church. The church isn't given any land. So why would he be talking about land? Do you see? If you come at it just with the kind of the framework that I've been trying to teach you, this covenant framework, you don't have to change anything. You just I say, oh yeah, he's dealing with, because he's dealing with the nations here, he's arguing that we can be related to Abraham through faith because this promise was made to Abraham. Isn't that what he's doing? But he's not tinkering with any of this or with these. and I'll go a little bit further down here verse 17 in the presence of him whom he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did 
who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And here the, the descendants is the, the, the context, the idea is that this is a spiritual descendants. Okay? So, um, what Paul is teaching here is in complete continuity with the Old Testament. You don't have to tinker, you don't have to change anything and you certainly have no license here to say that the church is the new Israel and God is all through with the national promises to Israel. Okay, we're going to stop there. Um, Next week, I want you to read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. Chapters 9 through 11. And then I also want you to, uh, to read chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians. And if you're really godly, read chapter 1 of Colossians. Alright, deep breath. I'm fully aware that um, in in this crossover, because for them it wasn't a quick crossover. It, It took months and years and you know, they could sort this out and they could, they had, they only had the, the Old Testament. We've got baggage. Okay, our baggage is God's dealing with the church. The church is it. Well, yeah, it is right now. But that can, because our default setting is to think, ah, that means this. We have to be careful that we follow the scriptures carefully and that we don't allow ourselves to come to false conclusions about the church now being the only thing on God's horizon. And Israel, well, they, they didn't obey God. You know, they broke the covenant. And individual Jews can come to Christ. And maybe at the end of time, there'll be a revival of Jews and he'll get saved and join the church. But the church is the new Israel. Okay, that's the way that the uh, replacement theologians teach it. Uh, and they teach it that way because they have come to the conclusion, not guided by the Bible at all, the Bible doesn't teach that, but they've come to that conclusion because God is not dealing with Israel right now. Because we're in this phase. And they haven't recognized that. They haven't recognized that there are covenant promises to the nation of Israel and also to the nations that have not yet been fulfilled and cannot be fulfilled until Jesus comes back. Last thing I'm going to say, promise you, remember in the prophets, where does the emphasis, when it's talking about Christ, the Messiah, where does the emphasis fall? What's the thing that the prophets talk about again and again and again and again? is the kingdom, what we know is a second coming. That's, that's the big stuff.
Okay? The wolf will lie down with the lamb, all that stuff. That's second coming stuff. There's only a few places where it talks about his suffering. So the emphasis is here, after his second coming. If we put it here, at his first coming, we're going to misinterpret the Bible. And can somebody remind me that I said that next week? Okay? Because I like... Uh, can I write it up here? Um, I actually have taught it before, but I, uh, I keep forgetting that I said it. Um, so I'm going to write it up here, and you should write, write it up too. <clears throat> okay, if we interpret the Old Testament... Prophecies and covenants according to the first advent, okay, that is the cross. and ascension we will misinterpret interpret the Bible and I'll try to remember to to bring a few authors that I'll read to you where they explicitly say that's what they're doing. And then you'll see that all of them say the church is a spiritual Israel. Are there specific uh, denominations other than Catholicism? Presbyterians. uh, All Presbyterians. I mean, unless they're liberal. Well, liberals are even worse than anti-Semitic, but... Um, Presbyterians way back in the 1920s I think or 1930s decided that the view that there is um, a, a future for national Israel goes against the Westminster standards and therefore that is an unorthodox belief for Presbyterians to hold and the Westminster Standards are... The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechism and the Longer Catechism, which are the standards. In order to be a Presbyterian in good standing, you have to hold to those standards. Um, so they would be the main ones. Uh, but then you have Reformed Baptists who hold to the London Confession of 1689, which is basically a rip-off from the... Uh, Westminster standards with some Baptist differences in it um, and uh, Wes- or some Wesleyans as well will hold that position from their viewpoint so yes um, it's actually the majority view I would say in among scholars that the, the 
Yes. To make a shift because more teaching might be needed. I don't actually no, it's not. I would. You I, don't think it is? I really don't. Um, I wish I could agree with you there. Maybe it's just certain churches. Then yeah. The ones I yeah. Yeah, because you go to Calvary Chapel and so on. So, but no, I'm afraid this is a dying view. Yes, Paul. Oh yeah. yeah, ladies first. Maybe you've already answered it. Maybe not. You can do it quickly. Okay, we've got Israel. Then we've got the Jews from Israel that become Christians, and then we got the Gentiles that become Christians. So where does Paul fit in? Is he now part of the bride, of the church, or is he still an Israelite? Or you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Paul is a saved Jew who's in the church. Okay, so that means a different inheritance. Uh, to what? The second coming in the kingdom? Because remember, land and is promised to Israel. To Israel. So what you're saying is, is that those Jews who are in the church will be separated to enjoy the land inheritances after the second coming. Is that what you... Yeah, okay, that's what Arnold Fruchtenbaum teaches. And I disagree strongly. Um, I disagree strongly because of the theology of the church. Um, and I can't get there, but I will get there at a certain point. You said quickly, and that's yeah, that's, that's a quick answer, much. okay? Um, but no, he's he's in the church, and and that's that. Now I will say something else about that a little later. And if you go to Matthew 19, remember the promises of Christ there to the apostle to the sorry disciples when the Son of Man comes and the regeneration. Yeah, you'll, he'll sit on the throne of his glory. You'll sit on 12 thrones judging. They will be part of the church, but then they will also have a role in judging Israel. Okay? So, I can go that far, but to say that they will be separated from the church, I won't go that far, because the church is actually, they're the foundation, as we'll see next week, of the church. You can't remove the foundation. Yeah. 